Have you ever wondered what is the evidence for evolution? Well, some people might use the fossil record to promote evolution. Some people will use geology. Other people might use cosmology or the Big Bang. But today we're going to take a very interesting approach. We're going to look at the probability of evolution even occurring. Well, I want to welcome you to Creation Radio and TV. I'm your host, Mike Rillo, the founder and president of Creation Training Initiative. And today we're going to examine of talk called probability and evolution. We're not going to get into all the other evidences. We're going to look at is evolution even possible by looking at design and order. So let's start by describing what we mean by probability. To take the scare out of it. Now there's going to be very easy numbers. We're going to have some big numbers in here, but the math is going to be very simple. So this is really not going to be a scary subject today. Well, probability is the measure that the likeliness of an event will occur. It is used in math to quantify or measure the likelihood that something might happen. In other words, we hear these statements. What is the possibility this event will occur? Or how certain are we, how certain are we that this event might happen? Now, we see this in every day in our lives. For example, the weather report. We might hear things such as, there's a 40% chance of rain tomorrow. In other words, that's a pretty good probability it might happen, but it's not real high. Or how about this one we hear in the airlines industry? This airline has an 80% on-time rate. In other words, 80% of the time this airline arrives on time. Now, that might be a pretty good percentage. So we see probabilities used in our life all the time. Another example of probability would be tossing a coin, a fair coin. Let's make sure we have a fair coin there. Now, when we toss a coin, there's only two possible outcomes. Therefore, the probability is 50% of the time we will get a heads and 50% of the time we'll get a tails. So that's what we mean by probability. So far, we've kept it pretty simple and we're going to keep it simple all the rest of the way. Now, the probability that an event will occur is usually described in terms of math using numbers 0 and 1. 0 being low, 1 being high. In other words, if we have a 0% chance of something to occur, that means it's not possible. But if we have a 1, if the probability comes up to 1 or something like nine, close to 1, like 90%, there's a very good chance it will happen. If it equals 1, then it is a certainty that it will happen. So we usually put our probabilities in mathematics between 0 and 1. For example, 90%. If there is a probability of 90% an event will occur, that would be written 0.9. That means there's a high possibility that event will happen. Or if we had something, a 10% chance that an event will occur, that would be written 0.1. That's not a very high probability. In other words, that's pretty low it's going to happen. How about if we had a 1% chance an event might happen? Well, that is very low because 1% written in mathematics is 0.01. That's getting very close to zero. So I wouldn't bet on that kind of a chance occurring. Now, let's see how this applies to our topic on origins, evolutionism. We're going to look at two areas. We're going to look at design and we will look at probability, the math applied to the design. Now, the argument from design or order is a very powerful argument for, design, for a creator. It's a very powerful argument for creation since we directly observe this all around us. 
We see man-made machines all the time. We see a well-ordered objects in design, which is again a testimony to intelligence behind what we're viewing. For example, when we see a watch, we know that watch was designed. It did not happen by random chance. When we see things like a computer, a car, or a bridge, we know they didn't happen by random chance. That's just common sense. We know there was an intelligent designer behind them. So in most cases, we can distinguish easily between something that is designed and something that happened by random chance. It's very obvious. But now, how about in nature? Do we really need intelligent cause for everything we see in nature? This is where the argument's going to come. See, the rise of evolutionism has caused many to abandon the design argument in favor of evolution. For example, evolutionists will commonly use something called the snowflake. See, the snowflake has a marvelous design. However, it arises by natural causes. It does not have to be designed by any human being or any intelligence. Therefore, the snowflake seems to refute the need of intelligence behind the design and order we see in nature. Well, when this one is brought up, what is often not recognized in this argument is that there are two types of design when applied to order. The first kind, in the example we just gave, was the snowflake because it can arise by natural processes based upon physical properties in matter. For example, water molecules. Water molecules, when frozen, will form into a well-ordered design, and that just is a natural occurrence, so much like a crystal or snowflake. But the second kind of design that we have is not the result of anything inherent in the properties of matter. It opposes anything we see naturally occurring. Let me explain the difference here. Let's suppose we travel around the country and we observe some wonderful rock formations out there. The formations, a lot of times that we see, are due to wind and erosion and rain. In other words, they're due to natural processes. When we get up close, we can see this. We can examine the type of lines and formations right up into the rock, and we see these were not designed by some intelligence. They happened through naturalistic processes. Now, let's look at another kind of design, another kind of rock. Let's suppose we go to Mount Rushmore. Now, we can easily get close there and see the carvings on the rock and see this was made by a designer. These did not occur by naturalistic processes. The faces were intelligently created. This is the second kind of order. Now, the most common example of this second kind of order is called life. Let's move from design now to the next step, which is probability. Let's apply a little mathematics here. And again, the math will be very simple, but the numbers might get very large. Let's talk about design in life and the probability that life arose purely by naturalistic means, meaning by evolution. Question is, is it possible that life, the very first cell, could have arisen by purely naturalistic processes? We'll start our probability problem here by checking something I call our credulity factor. Now, what do we mean by credulity factor? What we mean by that is how willing are you to, to believe something on very little observable evidence? 
Or how trusting are we to believe something? Or better yet, how gullible are we? That's what we mean by testing our credulity factor. How credible is the evidence we're really seeing out there? For example, let's suppose we were to roll a pair of dice and I got a seven the first time. Would that be very suspect? Well, no, there's a good probability that it could occur. There's only, there, there's only so many chances there. But how about if I rolled a seven two times in a row? Would you get a little suspicious that maybe I'm cheating or putting some design in here? How about if I rolled a seven four times in a row? Now you're going to pick up those dice and check them to see if they're not weighted or loaded dice. And if I rolled seven ten times in a row, you would probably ask me to leave the room because you know for sure I'm cheating. In other words, our credulity factor is not very high there. Just rolling seven two times in a row and you're going to get a little suspicious. But four times in a row, you're going to get very suspicious. Now remember that, our credulity factor, just four times in a row of seven, you're getting pretty suspicious. Now, that would not be happening by chance. I would have done something to the dice. Now, we can ask two questions about the origin of life and evolution. Bring this down to the evolution issue. How successful have our scientists been in creating life or even the components of life in a laboratory? See, we're going to apply what we've just had with the rolling of the dice, the flipping up a penny, that probability, that design, to evolution now. How successful have our scientists, our best scientists, been in creating a living cell or even components of a living cell in the laboratory? That's question number one. And question number two, what is the probability that such an event could occur through naturalistic processes, in other words, random processes? What is the probability that could occur on its own? No intelligence allowed. So question one, how successful have scientists been in creating life or components of life in the laboratory? Well, the answer is not even close. With all their intelligence and all the best equipment out there, the best the scientists are can do is not even close. Our best scientists have not even been able to come up with or create a single biological protein, let alone all the other components like RNA, DNA, organelles, ribosomes. They can't even get a single protein. Let's take a look at what some scientists have to say about that. Now here's a physicist, and I'll quote, a great deal of effort has been expended in finding theories for the origin of life without success. Let's run through several more scientists and what they have to say about creating life in a laboratory. Here's a gentleman who has two PhDs, one in chemistry and one in information scientists. And he says, as far as science knows, the law of biogenesis, life arises from life, is still valid. In other words, the law of biogenesis is a scientific law. And what it states here is life only comes from life. There are no known exceptions. Nobody's ever observed anything other than this. That is the death knell of evolution, unless you want to, don't want to believe in the laws of science, folks. Here's another scientist has his PhD in chemistry. Dating the origin of life to a time of billions of years ago still doesn't explain how life could start from non-living matter. In other words, that's how the evolutionists deal with this issue. They bury it in billions of years of time 
so they don't have to demonstrate any observable evidence, folks. That is not science. That is faith, and it's being taught in our public school system. In other words, that faith is allowed to be taught in a public school system. Well, why not every other religious faith then? See, we're being very discriminatory here. We're practicing censorship in our schools by teaching one faith and not others. Well, here's a scientist who also happens to be an evolutionist, and his statement is this. I think it is dangerous to argue that the origin of life is irrelevant to evolution. It is no less relevant than the Big Bang is to physics and cosmology. Evolution should be able to explain, in theory at least, all the way back to the very first organism that could replicate itself through biological or chemical processes. And to understand that organism fully, we would simply have to know what came before it. And right now, we are nowhere close. Are you getting the picture here? Our scientists are not even close. Well, let's look at one more, another scientist. Since there is no known scientific procedure to generate life in the laboratory, let alone by some unknown prebiotic mechanism, one could assume the probability of life from purely physical causes is zero. And that's where we stand today, folks. But let's investigate this further. We need to look at more of this probability. Now, one of the problems that evolutionists have run into in trying to create life is science. Real science, not made-up stories, not fairy tales, not billions of years. But the biggest problem scientists or evolution has run up to against the origin of life is science, observational science. In other words, we know from observational science that life cannot start in the presence of oxygen in the atmosphere. See, freestanding oxygen destroys chemical bonds. So as soon as any of those chemicals started coming together, they would have been immediately destroyed by the oxygen in the atmosphere. So there's one area of science that prevents life from originating by natural processes. We also know through observational science that life cannot start without oxygen in our atmosphere. Because if we were to take all the oxygen out of our atmosphere, that means we also have to take away the ozone because it's made out of oxygen. And if there is no ozone, then the ultraviolet rays of that sun will come down and fry or destroy any potential life or any life. We also know, based on observational science, that life cannot start in water. Now, water is necessary for life, but it is one of the worst places in the universe for life to begin. There is a process called hydrolysis. Hydro meaning water. Hydrolysis literally means water splitting. As soon as any of those components came together to form molecules in water, within a matter of weeks, they would have all been destroyed. So we know, based on observational science, life cannot start on the land with or without oxygen, and it can't start in the water. Also, we know, based on observational science, that things that make up proteins called amino acids come in two shapes. We call them left-handed amino acids and right-handed amino acids. But all amino acids used in biological proteins are left-handed. Well, what's so important about that? Well, the natural tendency is always to bond left and right-handed. In other words, every experiment we've ever done in the laboratory always ends up with an even mixture of left and right-handed amino acids. But life requires 100% left-handed. This 
is observational science. And that's what evolutionists have run up against. Science is their biggest stumbling block. Now, scientists are unable to create the building blocks or even come up with a plausible explanation for how life originated by naturalistic processes, then their only possibility is to shove it into the deep past and make statements like, oh, over billions of years ago, and given enough time, the chemicals somehow came together and formed the first living cell. Folks, that is today still a fairy tale. There's no known science to support that. So let's take a look at this. Is it probable that that event could even occur? We'll start with understanding what big numbers look like. And we're going to keep this very simple. And we're going to use some scientific notation in here to shorten things up. For example, 10 is really 10 raised to the first power or 1 followed by 1, 0. 100 is 10 raised to the second power or 1 followed by two zeros. 1,000 is 10 raised to the third power or 1 followed by three zeros. Are we seeing the progression here? Now let's go up to a million. A million is 10 raised to the sixth power or 1 followed by six zeros. A billion is 10 raised to the ninth power or 1 followed by nine zeros. And likely a trillion, 10 raised to the twelfth power a quadrillion 10 raised to the 15th power, and a quintillion 10 raised to the 18th power, or 1 followed by 18 zeros. That's an example of some very large numbers, and we'll be dealing with these. Now let's get back to the cell. Cells are made up of many different components. For example, we have things like DNA, RNA, proteins, ribosomes, organelles, cytoplasm, flagellum, cell membrane, mitochondria, and many other components inside a cell. Now in this study, we're going to keep it very simple. All we're going to talk about is the protein. We're not going to talk about DNA and RNA in here. We're just going to see, is it possible one biological protein could occur by naturalistic processes? Now proteins are very important in, in our study here. They're very important in all cells. See, they are involved in virtually all cell functions. So if we can't get proteins, there are no cells. Well, let's go back to our flipping the coin example here. Remember, we flip a coin, we have two possible outcomes. Therefore, the probability of getting heads or tail is 1 in 2, or 50%. And we wrote that as, what, 0.5. That's 50-50 chance. And when we toss a die, there are six possible outcomes. When you got a fair die, you've got six possible outcomes. One, two, three, four, five, six on each of the sides. That would be one chance in six of getting any particular number. Notice we want to get the number five. What's the possibility of getting number one? Five when we roll the die. Well, that would be one chance in six, or about 17% of the time we'll get a five. That would be written in 0.17, or a very low possibility of getting a five not one you necessarily want to bet on. Now, when we examine the formation of a protein, there are actually many, many factors involved. What I want to do in this talk is look at just six of the factors that affect the formation of a protein, or how a protein might come into being by naturalistic processes. Number one, there are hundreds and hundreds of different types of amino acids out there but only 20 are used in life. That means there's a probability problem here. 
of all those amino acids out there, only 20 are used in life. So if we get one of the wrong amino acids in building that protein, it's useless. We've got to start all over again. So there's one problem. Secondly, the amino acids come in two shapes. Remember, left-handed and right-handed. And the natural tendency is to bond left and right. But we've got to get all left-handed ones. So there's another probability problem right there. Third, the amino acids have to be in the right order to get a protein. So you can't just get all left-handed amino acids. They also have to be in the right order. There's another probability problem. Fourth, that mythical primordial soup. And I say mythical because no one's ever found it. It's just something somebody made up. But in that mythical primordial soup, there would have been the correct amino acids used in biological proteins, but there also would have been the hundreds that are not used in life. And if you get one of these wrong ones in there while that protein is being built, it can cause serious damage and we have to start all over again. A fifth problem is we have to have a source of energy. You see, we can't just have this happen by magic. There must be a source of energy to get these amino acids bonded together and put into a protein. Now here's the problem. Not only do we have to have a source of energy, but it has to have a, be a usable source of energy. Just raw energy will not do this. Some mechanism already has to be out there to take that raw energy and convert it into usable energy. Where did that come from? And number six, we have the problem of oxygen and water. Remember, in the presence of oxygen, life will not start. If there is no oxygen, it's all fried. And if it happens to be in water, the bonds are destroyed also. So there are six major problems the evolutionists have in the formation of one biological protein by random chance. Now, to help understand the probability of the formation of protein, we're going to use the example of flipping a penny again, that has two possible outcomes, heads and tails. So the question is, what are the chances of getting heads every time we flip a fair coin? And I say fair coin, it's not weighted in any way. So let's go through this, because it'll help us understand the probability of the formation of a protein. Now, what's the prob probability of getting one head when I flip a coin? Well, that is one in two, 50%. What's the probability of getting two heads in a row? Well, that's one in four. Flip that coin four times, somewhere in there you're going to get two heads in a row. Now, what's the chance of getting three heads in a row? Well, that turns out to be one chance in eight. Do you see our progression now? One head was two to the first power. Two heads was two to the second power. Three heads is two to the third power or two times two times two, or one chance in eight of getting three heads in a row. Now let's skip ahead a little bit. What are the chances, if I flip a fair coin, of getting heads eight times in a row? Well, that would be two to the eighth power, or 256. One chance in 256 times. Now let's skip ahead again. What are the chances of getting 100 heads in a row. Well, that might take a little time. That happens to be 2 to the 100th power, or if we do a little mathematics, that is 10 to the 30th power. One chance in 10 to the 30th power. And folks, 10 to the 30th power is 1 followed by 30 zeros. Now, how 
Could that happen? Well, in order to achieve 100 heads in a row, now here's how this is happening. If you're flipping that coin, you get one head, two head, three heads, and you got up to 20 heads in a row, and then you flip a tail, you got to start all over again. But in order to get 100 heads in a row, you're going to have to flip that coin very fast. How fast? How about 300 million times a second for over one quadrillion years? That's just to get 100 heads in a row. Now let's equate that to getting a protein consisting of 100 amino acids, 100 left-handed amino acids. Because the probability of getting 100 heads in a row is very similar to getting 100 left-handed amino acids to form a single small biological protein. And incidentally, proteins range in size from anywhere from 50 amino acids up to over 30,000. So we're going to be working in this talk with just a very small protein of 100 amino acids. So probably a small protein is very similar to flipping that penny. And it turns out to be 10 to the 30th power. In other words, the probability of getting 100 left-handed amino acids together to form a small biological protein is 10 to the 30th power. And again, that is one followed by 30 zeros. I'm going to ask you a question. How believable is that? In other words, what's your credulity factor there? How credible is that claim that it happened by random chance? But wait, there's more. This number 10 to the 30th only measures the probability of getting left-handed amino acids. Did you know order also matters? Yes, it does. We we just can't get amino acids for a protein. We have to get the right amino acids. We have to get them in the right order. For example, let's talk about order here. A jumbo jet, a Boeing 747, contains about 6 million non-flying parts. Not one single part of that Boeing 747 flies by itself. So what makes it fly? It's called design and order. I don't think anybody would say random chance. It's design and order. Likewise, a cell is made up of billions of non-living parts. So what makes it alive? Well, the obvious answer is design and order. So in building our biological protein of 100 amino acids, number one, they have to be all left-handed, and they have to be in the right order. In other words, amino acid number one has to be first in the correct order. Amino acid 2 has to be in the correct order. Amino acid 3 has to be in the correct order, all the way up to number 100. Now, I want to add something in here, commonly called the law of large numbers. Mathematician Emil Borel proposed one chance in 10 to the 50th as an upper limit that a chance at event would occur. In other words, one followed by 50 zeros. He said, that's an upper limit. If beyond that, it's not going to happen. Well, there's still always a possibility. It's never quite zero. But to believe it could happen beyond that, folks, is not science. It's faith. Because no one's, as far as we know, has ever observed anything beyond that limit to occur. So this presents an even bigger problem now for the evolutionists. You see, again, there's hundreds of different types of amino acids, but only 20 used in life. To make it even easier for the evolutionists, what we're going to do is an experiment. We're going to make it easy for the evolutionists. We're only going to start with and use the 20 used in life. 
All those amino acids, all those other hundreds of amino acids, we're not even going to bring into this experiment. We're only going to include the 20 that are used in life. So we're going to make it very simple for the evolutionist. So what we're going to do is fill a paper bag with all these amino acids, just the 20 different kinds used in life. And we're going to have multiple copies of each one. In other words, of amino acid one, we're going to have a thousand copies. Of amino acid two, we're going to have a thousand copies. Amino acid three, we're going to have a thousand copies. So there's an equal amount of each of the 20 different kinds of amino acids inside that paper bag. And our challenge is, number one, to blindfold ourselves, then reach into that paper bag and pull out the correct amino acid in the correct order until we get a biological protein consisting of 100 amino acids. Let's see how this would work. To get the very first amino acid in the correct order, there would be one chance in 20. Not too bad. We got one. But to get the first two amino acids, the correct ones, in the correct order, would be 1 over 20 times 1 over 20, or one chance in 400, just to get the first two. How about the first three? Now, again, they have to be the correct amino acid in the correct order. Just to get the first three that way would be 1 over 20 times 1 over 20 times 1 over 20, which would be one chance in 8,000. Now, how about to get all 100 amino acids, the correct amino acid in the correct order? Well, that would be 1 over 20 times itself 100 times, or 20 to the 100th power, which is equates to 10 to the 130th power. And folks, that is a very large number. That is a number that looks like this, one followed by 130 zeros, well beyond the law of large numbers. Where's our credulity factor now on this? Well, to help us illustrate how big that number is, let's suppose we just took 10 to the 21st silver dollars, just 10 to the 21st silver dollars and covered the entire United States with them. That would cover the entire United States to a depth of 120 feet. And that's only 10 to the 21st silver dollars. Our probability of getting that protein, small protein, is 10 to the 130th power far beyond the law of large numbers. Again, I'll ask, where's your credulity factor now? But wait, there's still more in this. We've just talked about one protein. In the simplest type of life we know of, it takes about 387 proteins. The probability of getting 387 proteins is 10 to, over, to the 5,000th power. That's one followed by 5,000 zeros just to get 387 proteins, the simplest form of life we know of. And that doesn't account for all the other components inside there, such as DNA and RNA and all the other more difficult components to get. Are you starting to see the whole idea of evolution is not science? Now, in order for a protein to, full, to do the right function, to, for proteins, do different functions. But to do the right function, they have to fold the right way. So one of the biggest things scientists have been trying to do is figure out how proteins do their folding. Now, in order to help with this, in 2005, IBM built the most powerful computer we've ever seen. They named it Blue Gene. Now, the, the task of this computer was to 
figure out how the protein folds correctly. Now, despite all the enormous computing power inside this machine, it took the machine one full year just to figure out how a protein folds. But did you know the cell can do that in less than one second? Wow! We're not even close, are we, folks? Not even close with all our scientific technology. Let me read you another quote here, and we've seen this one before. I just need to read it again. Since there is no known scientific procedure to generate life in the laboratory, let alone by some unknown prebiotic mechanism, one could assume the probability of life from purely physical causes is zero. Folks, to say this could happen is nothing more than a faith statement since it has never, ever been observed. See, science should be built on observation, not just conjecture. And here's another quote. In what other science disciplines would outcomes be less than 10 to the 100? When people say this statement, it's possible that is used, scientists must verify that the pronouncement is indeed possible using known science. Without such safeguards, the public will be misled to believing something is science as opposed to some scientist's speculation or belief. In other words, there's an awful lot of people giving their speculation and beliefs, and that's what's being taught in our public education system, rather than real science. Here's another quote, and now we've talked about a protein. Let's go to the cell itself. How probable is it that one cell, one biological cell, could happen by random chance? And here's an astronomer. But even if chemical barriers for the linkages, meaning amino acids, are artificially and miraculously removed, the really vast improbability of 1 in 10 to the 40,000th poses a serious dilemma for the whole of evolutionary science. Life could not be an accident, not just on the Earth alone, but anywhere, anywhere at all in the universe. In other words, the estimated probability of getting one, one cell by random chance is 10 to the 40,000th power, or 1 followed by 40,000 zeros. Where's your credulity factor now? Now, here's a quote from the director of the Gene Emergence Project. In short, belief in the spontaneous generation of life through natural processes is without rational, empirical, or predictive support. So bring this to a close. What are we to make of all this? Number one, the whole model of Darwin evolution depends on the evolution of the first cell. Without a living cell, Darwinian evolution is dead. It's only a faith belief. Number two, the probability of a single protein occurring by random chance is almost zero, 10 to the 130th power. Three, the probability of getting one cell by random chance is for all practical purposes, zero. Number four, to still profess evolution means you must have faith that evolution is true because it cannot be supported through observational science. And number five, our educational system refuses to teach students the truth about science today. And we'll finish with two very meaningful messages from our Creator about all this. And one comes in Romans 1, 19 and 20. Because what may be known of God is manifested them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, 
being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And the final message from our Creator comes in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Thank you, and God bless you. If these lessons had been a blessing to you, you might consider financially supporting the Ministry of Creation Training Initiative. You can do this by going to our website, creationtraining.org. Again, that's creationtraining.org. Your tax-deductible donation of just $20, $50 or more a month, or a one-time gift of any amount will make you an education partner in building an army of Christian educators who can teach the biblical account of creation and train others to be able to defend their faith and be biblically faithful to God's Word as it states in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Thank you.